Hi, I'm Dr. Stan Steindl. Welcome to Compassion in a T-Shirt in session with Dr. Tara Hickey. Tara is a clinical psychologist who originates from Ireland via the UK to the USA and back again, finding herself in Melbourne, Australia, and now in Western country, Victoria. Tara has a lot of experience working with young people who are at risk of psychosis. She recently completed her PhD, which involved a preliminary investigation into a mindfulness and compassion-focused approach to working with young people. She's a skilled clinician, a clever researcher, and she reminds us to bring our compassion to all living beings and to the planet that we live on. I hope you enjoy my conversation in session with my friend, Dr. Tara Hickey. Well, welcome, Dr. Tara Hickey, um, to Compassion in a T-Shirt in Session. Uh, I'm very pleased that we that we got to to chat. We're actually on the same time zone, which is cool because quite often <laughs> I'm talking to people who are all over the place. But um, uh, so you're you're not in you're in country Victoria, is that right? I am. So I I was living the last ten years in Melbourne, but like a lot of people in Melbourne, of course, uh, we all decided to have a bit of a city uh, sorry a country escape. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I have moved yeah, to Western Victoria in recent months. Yeah, yeah right. So, um, yeah, I think we first, I, I, I'm actually not sure when we met because we've sort of bumped into each other a lot over, over the years, but um, absolutely you were involved with the Compassion Symposium a couple of times and, and came up and presented uh, with that. I, I think you're also quite involved with the um, Compassionate Mind Australia. Is that correct too? Yeah, that's right. So I'm one of the committee members for CMA. One of the committee members for CMA. And you've been doing your, um, yeah, wonderful PhD. And I think that's relatively recently all come to fruition and, and uh, sort of completed that sometime last year. So I'm, I'm actually really hoping to, to hear a little bit about that as well over the, the, the conversation today. But um, yeah, how are things down there in, in country Victoria today? Is it getting chilly? It is starting to, definitely. You certainly notice it in the mornings, but I can't complain. We still get some nice sun in the afternoon. And it, um, yeah, it's just really nice to be able to be out in the mountains or um, ah. just really kind of escape, um, you know, to, the, to the, well, all the stuff that countryside has to offer, really. So no complaints yeah. this end. Yeah. Is, is that <laughs> as, man... Is that man from Snowy River country or no? No, so I'm more Western. I'm past the Grampians, more out that direction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, I, I, I always like to just sort of check in and, and sort of see if people can, you know, just tell, if you, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, I, I, I know I'm very perceptive, but I can sort of tell there's a, there's a somewhat of, a, of an accent there, so I'm not sure. But um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Tara. What's, what's the story there? Well, I was just thinking it's probably a bit of a blended accent by this stage. So um, yeah. yeah, I did grow up in Dublin um, and I moved to the UK where I did my clinical training at the University of Birmingham. I was really fortunate when I was there. They gave you an opportunity that if you were able to get all your academic work done, that you could do your last six months placement as an overseas placement. So I got to um, hang out or to train in Bellevue Hospital in New York City. So needless to say, that was great fun. Mm -hmm. And then I returned to the UK and I did a stint in London, but I really felt like I just wanted to try something else as the NHS. And the work I was doing at the time originated in Melbourne. So I was like, oh, well, why don't I try? Why don't I try Australia? Why don't I try Melbourne? Mm. Um, so yeah, brought me this side and I really liked it. I was like, this is like, it was, had been my favorite place I'd lived so far. So yeah, ended up staying a lot longer than I intended and here I am. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Yeah. What, what was the work that you were doing that, that brought you here? So at the time when I was London, I was working in an early intervention team for youth with psychotic symptoms. Mm. And of course, it all began the early intervention and psychosis in Epic 
or Origin Youth Health in Melbourne. Mm. Um, so is that that kind of brought me here? I obviously no longer work uh, there at, anymore, um, but it was certainly the, the work that was my main focus at the time. Mm. So working with young people uh, who were sort of showing those early kind of signs of, of perhaps developing a psychotic disorder or and trying to have some early interventions there. Yeah, so we're working from individuals all the way to what you call the at-risk mental state. So people that you basically had a higher than average risk of developing psychosis. So, mm. you know, they may hear a murmur or a voice, but it wasn't maybe often or frequent, you know, frequent enough to be seen as a full-blown psychotic symptom. Um, they may have a very mild kind of suspicious and paranoia. Again, not frank psychotic symptom. So, and we're really kind of being quite watchful in, in that way. And obviously also trying to be very preventive in terms of them transitioning or to further develop um, psychosis down the track, um, as well as individuals who have experienced their first episode of psychosis as well. So mm. really, yes, those kind of early days in that experience. Mm. There were some early warning signs or, or some people had actually experienced a a first episode. So in those initial days working in, in that area, what, what were some of the, the main approaches you were taking back then? Wow, it just makes me think about how much has changed. I, 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 I wondered about that. Yeah, I, I wonder whether that had happened. Yeah, because, you know, when I trained, I also did a placement with the um, early intervention service in Birmingham. So that's actually where it started in terms of the mm. UK. It had looked at Epic, it had brought the model across the UK and they developed it there. And we're predominantly using, I was at least in my training, and I think a lot of other practitioners, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. Um, I actually set a mindfulness-based stress reduction course myself when I was in London. It was purely for personal benefit. Um, and actually, one of the things I began to think about was how helpful this would be for individuals who are experiencing voices or paranoia. And I remember having a conversation with a client and then bringing it to supervision. And it was about how to use mindfulness with the voices that this chap was experiencing. And I remember a supervisor saying, these are sounding like some really fruitful discussions. Um, so I suppose it really began to kind of, you know, draw my attention to, well, how do we use mindfulness uh, with psychotic symptoms and really that's in a way where my compassion journey began because when I did the MBSR course there was one session or one section of the session that focused on loving kindness um, and of course you know the extension from that in terms of you know um, how do we care for ourselves when we're suffering being kind of compassion that had really again ignited my interest um, and I, I heard, and I can't remember how, about Chris Germer's and Christian Neff's Mindful Self-Compassion course. So that brought me to the US a couple of times to train as a Mindful Self-Compassion teacher. Um, but of course, MSC is really designed for the general population. Um, and it was actually then through social media where, you know, a colleague back in the UK posted this photo of her young daughter reading her book upside down. And it was of compassion focused therapy. It was Paul's distinctive series. And I was like, oh, that looks really interesting. There's compassion in th for therapy. I really must go check that out. And that's really how I began to be able to kind of combine, you know, my interest of mindfulness and compassion in terms of bringing it to a therapeutic approach, particularly around psychosis at the time. Yeah, I, I, I love how you sort of almost followed your nose a little bit. You know, you, you were obviously working in this area and already quite passionate about it and, and doing the, the CBT thing, which was certainly, you know, an evidence-based approach in, in that area and, and so on. And, and, but personally, you know, just sort of exploring other, sort, other approaches and, and mindfulness led to compassion, led to mindful self-compassion. And then, yes, this sort of, um, well, the, the upside down book kind of turned your world upside down. <laughs> Very <laughs> true. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden there you are kind of, oh, you know, compassion as a therapy. Uh, and there was this sort of, yeah, like almost like a, a little revelation, you know, ha, huh, all these, these bits coming together. So what happened next then with, with CFT for you? Well, at the time, um, I was 
going back to your to visit family and I thought well this could be a perfect opportunity to train so I emailed Paul Gilbert and I said like would you happen to be doing any training in the UK at this time that I could attend uh, so uh, you know he emailed back and what he said to me is no I'm not but I'm actually in Copenhagen I thought oh, I could go there <laughs> 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 haven't been there before and um, so I uh, joined in and some people in Copenhagen very generously allowed me to join their training and I did the introduction and an advanced course there um, and what was really fortunate about that of course because Paul wasn't really coming to Australia regularly at that point so when he did start to come then I got to do his you know the personal practice workshops or the more advanced ones such as the chair workshops so since it's been really good to be able to do some uh, more workshops locally when Paul has visited too so he's so good like that isn't he like if you if you email him he, he really yeah he, he will often respond and give suggestions and and he's very generous with his thoughts and ideas but also time but yes that that's sort of um yeah remarkable really there you are you you've got a very adventurous spirit <laughs> all over the place and uh here was an opportunity to to do the training in in Copenhagen well that was all organic too so <laughs> it, it's all organic it's it's it, oh, that's right it's it just you know one thing kind of leads to another and and um and so then your 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 PhD was actually then really trying to I think bring all this together the work with early intervention the mindfulness the the compassion based stuff so yeah what tell us a bit about the PhD yeah that really came about again where I did actually be start to before I was trained in CFT I'd been running some MBSR courses um for just youth in general in origin youth health. So it could be depression, it could be psychosis, it could have been from the BPD clinic. Um, and really finding it, um, I think one of the things with youth services is it's always hard to get people to attend groups. But one of the things I was actually told when I finished up my work there was actually the MBSR was the most well-attended group they had run at that point. So that was really encouraging to hear. And of course, here I had done CFT, but I thought, wow, what extra we, can we kind of bring to this? So that made me kind of think about, well, how could I put together a mindfulness and compassion group that would meet the needs of these young people? At the time, I was originally looking at the at-risk mental state, but we did then go to include it with people in the early stages of psychosis. Um, but what I began to do, of course, is kind of look through the literature in terms of, you know, what is it that we really need to target and think of in terms of being useful for these young people? And I suppose one of the, some of the things that really came out were things like, of course, problems with motivation, difficulties with relationships, um, and also in uh, terms of course school or university struggling and of course it's, you know the age group I was working with at the time is 15 to 25 which is just such an important air time of life in terms of your trajectory so to try to keep young people on their trajectory as close as possible was really important um, so basically what I did then was think about okay what are all the things I've learned whether they're practices or theories or models and how can I apply it to what these young people could really do support with so like I suppose a lot of um you know programs it I designed it as an eight-week program is an hour and a half per week and I the first four weeks are very much in terms of helping people learn mindfulness skills because I suppose first of all you need to notice what's going on to be able to respond then middle weeks were very much in terms of learning the three emotional regulation systems from CFT and then also thinking about how they would relate to psychotic symptoms or anything else that the young person was struggling with. And then the remaining weeks was actually about how do you respond with compassion? So how do you motivate yourself with compassion? How do you actually bring compassion to your relationships with others? And actually, how do you, um, you know, in terms of bring it into your life in terms of helping you in, in terms of whether it's school um, or job or whatever that might be so trying to get a little bit more kind of practical in that way hmm. okay so it's it's really a a combination of of some of the mindfulness-based work and the cft sort of 
psychoeducation, but also the skills kind of bit. Just going back a little bit, any kind of ideas about what might have made the MBSR, you know, better attended, I guess, by the young people? I mean, I have to say one of the first things that comes to my mind really is that at the time, I suppose, mindfulness has really got to be a bit of a buzzword. So I'm sure that no doubt probably helped. Um, but yeah, I also think for young people, you know, one of the things they, that they commented on numerous times was basically got the, you know, this idea that I thought it was just my mind that worked like this, as in there was something kind of wrong with their mind or there's something not quite right. But then they began to realize, oh, everybody's mind actually works very similarly and it's not just me. And one of the other things that they began to learn is that they began to learn about themselves by being actually being able to observe and listen to others. So it really was this back and forth learning between their own experience of the practice, but also to listening to other people's experience. Mm. Yes, mindfulness really itself begins that process of de-shaming in a way and you know becoming more and more aware of one's own mind and but also in that group format becoming more aware of the minds of others in a sense and and then this this kind of well I guess common humanity that starts to develop out of that and and even the well the mindfulness based um, approach you know kind of can can create some of that and then there's the sort of yeah I guess the three systems and and the some of the core psychoeducation of of CFT how was that kind of received? I found that the young people really took to that model. Um, it really made sense for them. And it actually was part of the program that particularly in smaller groups, it seems that, you know, the individuals, you know, the youth, they get to know each other more, they feel safer among each other. And they were very keenly listening to other people's experiences in terms of their psychotic symptoms. But you could also tell they're waiting also to contribute when it's kind of that kind of space became available and talk about their experience. Mm. Um, and that actually, they're saying that it was the first time they've actually got to talk to other people, young people who've had these experiences. Mm. Um, and also they said they can do it in, they felt safe and they could do it in a, you know, in a group or a situation where they didn't feel judged. Um, and that was definitely also a common uh, theme among the you know the groups that I did run um, so I felt like it worked really well mm. it really was a conversation opener you know mm. well there was mm. the there was the safeness first of all wasn't there that that mm -hmm. sense of safeness in the group and then there was a kind of a an opportunity to hear other people's experiences and then and also almost a kind of a an eagerness or at least a readiness to, to share their own experience. But then there was this sort of model, I guess, that was able to make a little bit of sense of it, perhaps, or something like that. I mean, when, when you think about psychosis or some of the things people experience there and the three circles model, how, how do you see those sort of fitting together or what, what's, what's your thoughts with that? I, I think it's an area that there's still a lot of research on, you know, in terms of psychosis and CFT and then three models, we're still relatively in them early stages. Mm. Um, but one of the things like I feel in terms of it being particularly relevant is of course, you know, when people hear voices, they generally tend to be very critical of and, and critical of the individual who's experiencing them. Mm. Um, you know, whether they're saying, oh, you're so stupid or you can't do this or really derogatory. And as you can imagine, extremely difficult to live with. Um, but also in terms of paranoia, not only do you feel like the world isn't safe and that people are out potentially to get you, but also people who experience paranoia tend to be more self-attacking. So you could look at threat in terms of externally, you know, in terms of what does that mean for somebody with psychosis, like the world is out to get me, but also internally. So they're also in terms of being more self-attacking. Um, and the voices are also very critical as well. So, you know, the th them three systems are really helpful in terms of being able to think about it from 
that perspective. Mm. Um, and of course, when that happens and there's a real struggle, you know, a real you know, burden to be kind of uh, harassed, you know, sometimes by voices throughout the day, of course, it really compromised people's drive system. Um, and that sense of safety, of course, was also going to be very much diminished. So it was really in terms of helping people understand uh, that the threat system was overdeveloped. And, um, you know, one of the things, you know, remember learning through mindful self-compassion, this idea about perhaps how is this kind of dialogue or in this instance voice trying to help you, even if it's doing it in a crappy way. <laughs> so it's the idea, what is the function of it? So, of course, sometimes it is trying to motivate somebody or wanting them to be better at something. But in reality, of course, it's doing the opposite. So when you help somebody uh, um, kind of understand that, then it's a little bit about how to use motivation or that safety or soothing system as a motivator instead. Yeah, the, the, um, there's, there's that sort of sense of threat that goes along with the voices, partly an external threat, which is kind of like the, the sort of the social, self-conscious, external um, factors that feel threatening. And then there's also, yeah, the internal, the self-criticism, mm -hmm. the self-attacking, um and and altogether it just creates this very activated threat system and and, and undermines i guess drive system and and mm. so on um and trying to develop yeah the the, the soothing affiliative system i suppose that's a, a little bit what you were saying before isn't it even in the group there becomes this experience of affiliation amongst mm. the group which, which just starts to to create a, a little bit of a sense of belonging, um, being a part of the group, and then I suppose trying to see how how can we really cultivate that or, or activate you know that part as well. Maybe the voices can uh, can be reframed. You know what what's the what's the function there, or at least what's the motive there? Maybe the motive isn't just about bringing me down, but is is somehow even maybe in a misguided way but somehow mm. trying to help yeah absolutely and I think one of the most important things was to introduce that three circle model in in the middle of the program because it meant that they had at least three sessions together to get to know each other and exactly like that as you say that affiliation to kind of build begin to build some of those bonds so um, it made it, you know, you know, safer to kind of have some of those conversations. I think the other thing about the group, though, as well, in terms of thinking about that is the importance of having, of course, a co-facilitator. So you'd have somebody guiding, but then the other person. So I co-facilitated with um, an OT a therapist from one of the head spaces that took part in the study, and she had a diploma in mindfulness um, uh meditation teaching um and then i kind of brought her up to speed really in terms of compassion and compassion focused therapy but you know there was always one of us in terms of also kind of looking what's happening in the group as we, somebody was leading the practice um you know and there was a uh, member one young fella who looked agitated and i you know just caught his attention and kind of just very kind of subtly kind of made an indication as in you know does he want to leave or is he okay and he gave me a sign back to say actually i want to stay with this um and he did and he stayed with the practice and he seemed to really settle and then you know he chipped in in terms of the conversation afterwards and he said yes that he had heard voices he was particularly anxious and agitated but he wanted to stay with it and when he did that actually he yes he did begin to settle you know, of course, as other individuals, there was one person at one point that, you know, her best decision for her was to step outside the group for a moment um, and come back in again. If it was perhaps an exercise that just felt for whatever was going on for that day, just a little bit beyond her scope. Mm -hmm. um, and that's OK. So really people having the permission and also the confidence in terms of listening to their own wisdom. You know, it's OK for me to stay with this practice, have the courage and see this through or actually in this moment it makes more sense to allow myself to stop and and just take a pause for a moment um and it was really nice to be able to see the group uh, being able to to do that mm, the two facilitators really allows for that kind of monitoring and and that also 
subtle communication that that's mm. happening there it's a beautiful little example with that young person who um it reminds me you know of of the the metaphor of the the sort of the the the, the child or or sort of teenager out on the soccer field and they take a big tumble and then they kind of hurt themselves and they but they look over at maybe their mum or dad and the, the mum or dad's going you know like this and and then they're like yep yeah, and then they keep going you know sort of <laughs> thing. and those are those are lovely experiences when they can happen for kids and in families but but it's a little bit like that in the group isn't it you know you were able to just do a little check-in with him visually and 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 so on and he was able to go yep i'm okay and and keep going it, it's it's a beautiful moment and and yeah and then sometimes people knew as well that actually a break was probably a good idea too mm. you know which is which is that that <clears throat> sort of intrinsic wisdom mm. that we try to work with um and then the last two or three sessions in the group what 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 particular skills or or that sort of thing was was happening there once the the three circles model and some of that initial psychoeducation was done yeah, it really was in terms of responding with compassion. Um, so, of course, in terms of whether that's about developing a more compassionate inner voice or kind of inner dialogue, uh, that became much more reassuring in terms of, um, you know, in terms of guiding them in terms of what they needed in that kind of moment. Um, we also did a practice where we asked uh, people to pair up and to sit and actually each draw a moment of conflict or difficulty they had in a relationship of course something kind of mild to moderate that was relatively recent but then also kind of give them that opportunity where there was a listener and a speaker and you know one person had to explain um the situation and kind of what unfolded and the other person their role was to kind of mindfully listen and really just giving a person an opportunity first of all is to be like what's it like to be heard you know, when we don't jump in, we don't jump to a conclusions and we really listen to somebody. And then also for somebody in terms of, you know, to tell their story uninterrupted. And um, so really trying to help people in terms of bringing that mindfulness to communications and potentially hopefully to home and, you know, their also their kind of social circle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then um, other things was in terms of how do you motivate yourself with compassion, which of course the compassionate voice would help you to do too. Um, and really looking at the role of self-criticism and, and how it does tend to undermine us. And I showed, of course, a couple of video clips, one of them being you may be familiar with and many people will be familiar with is how mindfulness empowers us. So the fable about um, you know, the two wolves and which one do you feed? So mm. the one that's kind of, um, you know, either hostile or agitated or the one that's more kind of uh, wise or uh, courageous or kind. And, you know, the American fable being, you know, in terms of you can't get into battle with the hostile one, you just simply have to serve it. But really to feed the one that's been wise and more courageous and, you know, is going to guide you in a better direction. So I suppose using, really trying to use different modalities, you know, in terms of there's also the compassionate friend meditation. So, uh, you know, what would they give you? What would they say to you? You know, if you had to draw upon the image of a compassionate friend. Um, so we really try to mix it up in terms of how to help people learn. Mm. And the other thing actually, just to mention there that I was particularly conscious with was also the dosage of compassion. So, of course, we all know that um, for individuals who aren't familiar with compassion, that actually sometimes initial reaction, it can be quite difficult. It almost like a potentially activates a threat system because it's not familiar. So I really want to be conscious about that, particularly in a group setting. Um, so also just making sure that we kept it, you know, uh, like in terms of a low to moderate kind of dose, that we weren't going to do so much compassion that, the group is going to feel overwhelmed. So that was a really important thing to think about in terms of planning the program. And then also in terms of really gauging people, the responses and getting their feedback. 
I see. I, I was going to ask about the, because um, the length of it was about eight sessions, I think you said, and, and the first four sessions were really the mindfulness-based stuff. And, mm. and, and then the, the second four sessions, I guess, were more drawing on, on the CFT. But that, that was a conscious decision to just sort of keep the dosage nice and, and neat and, and kind of, uh, you know, just to, to sort of not activate that kind of that threat system and, and give people a, a kind of a, a, a taster, I guess. And, and I can hear like multi modalities, as you were saying, but also the three flows, you know, the, the self reassuring um, and the, you know, the metaphor of the two wolves and so on, you know, exploring the self-compassion, that little kind of listening practice, exploring both receiving compassion and uh, giving compassion. So yes, in, in amongst all of that comes the, 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 the sort of the three flows or orientations there. Yeah, very, very true. Yeah. So what, it, well, I mean, it sounds like it was received very well, and and uh, but what were some of the the little challenges there in terms of this this group or this population? I mean, were were there the the fears, blocks, and resistances, or, or were there other little challenges that you noticed? You know, the first one that really springs to mind was really in terms of getting young people to get to know each other, to feel safe among a group. Mm. Um, uh, when, it, when we ran the first group, we did 90 minutes and we hadn't taken a break and the feedback was they wanted to get to know other people more. So we thought, okay, I mean, we did the first three sessions deliberately having an icebreaker because if somebody missed the first session and came along to the second, well, there's an icebreaker. So you still get to know everybody. I mean, you couldn't join after the second session, but of course there's also a possibility there may be people in the third session who didn't know each other because somebody had missed the first or the second so we made sure to do the whole three but still young people I suppose there's only so much you can set up to help them to get to know each other but it's something they're particularly keen on and getting to know people takes time you know it's not something that you speed up but we certainly want to facilitate it in whatever way we could in terms of helping them to get to know each other so we decided to put a break in the middle um, and, you know, the first time and to leave the room. So if we left the room, of course, we weren't there for them to talk about. And they, we thought, well, they'll have to talk amongst themselves. They'll give them an opportunity to do so. And one of the things I never thought of, of course, was you come back in and they're all on their mobile phones. <laughs> ah. So I thought, oh, OK, we really need to, you know, next, you know, in terms of think about when we run the group, that's actually to say, can everybody like, put their mobile phone in silent or can you turn it off or do something where it was like this hour and a half without mobiles and um, so I think for young people for me that is the kind of key thing to be thinking about um, and really from there on you know the other thing I suppose that's particular to young people is you know when they talked about home practice you know the majority of people never did those formal sittings so we did suggest or invite them to meditate for 10 minutes a day and um, it was the minority who really kind of did that but what most people did in the group at least was do those on the spot ones you know so the stop practice so you stop you take a breath observe how you're feeling and then kind of ask yourself what do i need before you proceed with your day or a course like mindful walking or concentrating on the soles of your feet so it was all the ones that were convenient in a way um, or they could easily just blend into the day that they were practicing so for me those are the key things that would have really stuck out in terms of thinking about how to run or develop a program I, I just think that that idea of three sessions starting with icebreakers is just ingenious I've never never thought of that before but it's it's so clever because you, you're right you, the, the, uh, firstly some people might miss a session or something um, but also you know like it just gives everyone a chance to meet other people and and because the the group dynamic and the sense of safeness in the group is is so key I mean that that just seems you know very clever and I, I was going to say that, that the facilitators leaving the group during the break was ingenious too but of course I didn't think of 
the mobile phones. So um, neither yeah. do we. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting the the modern world in a way. But um, but yeah, you're putting a lot of effort, I guess, don't we? We need to put effort into trying to think how can we create that sense of of safeness in the group. Uh, and and then um, absolutely the home practice. I mean, even the work I've done with more adult populations, mm. the, the home practice is is always an interesting challenge. Trying to mm. work out, you know, what what might it be that could could really sort of help them feel engaged with with that. Mind you, the the the, the more practical on the spot examples are, are, are really useful as well. I think it's something that I do hope to continue to um, modify the program. And I think that would be a key thing in terms of thinking about how to modify the content of the program. Absolutely. So for the nerds amongst us, like me, <laughs> um, I guess I'm really curious about, uh, you know, how the, the results went with the, with the study itself and, and, you know, to, to get a bit of a, sense of, of the outcomes there what, what what did you find joe to be honest it was because it was a small pilot study i was a bit hesitant in terms of you know analyzing the results so when they came through i mean i was really pleased not only in terms of you know in terms of a number of findings being significant but also in a way that i would have predicted and uh, expected which was fantastic um, so really what we found, interesting actually, so we used the five facet mindfulness questionnaire. It was only one subscale of that was significant, which was acting with awareness, which is really important. We wanted to help these young people to exactly that, you know, be more aware of, of you know, what they were doing. Um, but in terms of self-compassion, that um, very much um had a large significant effect, particularly around a reduction in self-judgment. Um, that went down considerably. There was a large effect on that. Um, and also an increase in self-kindness. The other things we found was in terms of anxiety, depression, stress went down. Um, we used if for what we tend you tend to use for the at-risk mental state in terms of um, assessing subclinical psychotic symptoms is called the CARMS. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually showed that, that the uh, subclinical psychotic symptoms had reduced. Uh, but particularly what was most uh, became our strongest in that was the distress associated with them actually had reduced. We also used the BPRS. Now, the full-blown psychotic symptoms on that particular scale actually um, that wasn't significant in terms of change, and um, it, I'm not too sure why at this stage. Maybe it's harder, given of course that they're, you know, they're stronger um, and more intense symptoms. But certainly the stress associated with the psychotic symptoms reduced. Also, in terms of self-criticism went down, functioning went up, and I also looked in attachment. So while there was no change in people with an avoidant attachment, which probably wouldn't be that surprising that people with an insecure attachment actually started to become more, uh, there was an improvement on, on that component. Mm. One of the things that I found particularly interesting though, one of my, so I had two supervisors, Professor Gray Meadows from Monash University, and um, he's particularly has been involved in MBCT teacher training. And Professor Barnaby Nelson from the University of Melbourne, so who also works in Origin Youth Health. So his expertise, particularly being the at-risk mental state and psychosis. Um, and Barnaby had um, completed this study that actually showed that young people with an at-risk mental state who experienced more distress due to their symptoms had a poorer trajectory. So in terms of diagnostic outcome, but also in terms of you know, how they generally just got on in life between school or jobs and so forth. So I thought, well, this is really important. You know, it just, you know, it was, a, it was quite a large study and it was thinking, well, what's going on here that's particularly contributing to the distress? And they weren't too sure. So of course, our Zapala study, we don't have data to really kind of answer that question, but we certainly thought we'd kind of run a bit of a, 
uh, analyses just to look at even any association or trend or any indicators about uh, what might be happening. And what we actually found was that the more person engaged in self-criticism, then the more distressed they became, which makes sense. Um, and actually, the more they engage in self-reassurance, the stress was going down. So that's one of the things that we wrote a letter to the editor for um, uh, schizophrenia research. <laughs> um, and we wrote a letter to the editor and we just pointed this out um, in terms of we really feel like it's an area that could really do with some further explanation or exploration. Uh, with the, you know, of course, a much fuller uh, data set. But it certainly was our, a sense that potentially that may be one of the things that could happen. And of course, the ability of mindfulness or CFT to work with distress and the potential that could have for trajectory, um, you know, it, it sounds very promising. Mm. I mean, those are wonderful results. I mean, if you think about the sort of the active mindfulness increases the self-compassion increases and or, or self-judgment uh reduces people feel a little bit less down a little bit less anxious and and stressed and so on and while their actual psycho psychotic symptoms maybe don't change their their distress associated with those mm. symptoms change i mean that that's a that's a beautiful picture isn't it of 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 <laughs> a beautiful picture of, of where, of how things can change for them. And, and it sort of makes sense to me too, because often self-compassion isn't about fixing the, um, the certain experiences that we have in, in the mind, mm. but rather just helping us shift how we relate to ourselves um, when we have those experiences. And, and so it, it seems to, sort of bear out in your findings as well that it, that people are relating to themselves and to those symptoms a little bit differently you know after the group and amazing too because you know eight sessions is significant and it's also in some ways um you know a relatively brief intervention you know eight eight sessions mm -hmm. um and yet all of those all of those results so well, how has this kind of sort of moved you or, or touched you personally, you know, your, your involvement in, in the world of mindfulness and compassion and self-compassion and, and, and some of this really uh, significant work, how has it sort of ended up touching you? You know, it, it's interesting in some ways how it becomes um really more widespread than even your you know you know self-compassion your relationship to yourself you know i remember though being in a book club where we were discussing compassion books and one of the things you know many of us could relate to was in our younger years or certainly more critical so very grateful that there's been that transformation um but also i kind of think really importantly is also how do we be compassionate you know if you think about it bro more broadly so, you know, obviously in terms of climate change and, you know, the, you know, the major concerns that have been raised about that and really how we can be more compassionate in our actions in terms of what we choose to consume or purchase. Um, for me, that even extends in terms of our treatment of animals as well. Um, so I feel for me, it's not only in terms of my relationship with myself, with the people kind of around me, um, but also more, uh, extensively in terms of you know who you know who else we inhabit the planet with you know other creatures and then the planet itself um i would really love to see it kind of being more and more um being thought about in that way mm. yes yeah, so ourselves others around us but also just other living beings and you know the planet itself i i, I know you do a a lot of sort of advocacy in terms of animals and the treatment of animals and especially um i'm not sure what the correct term is but sort of food animals i suppose and and how we might mm. sort of treat those living beings as well yeah absolutely and i know it's not always the most um 
you know topic that people like to discuss and it's also a lot of you know before years ago I would have had less knowledge about as well but it's one of those things when your eyes are open to it you can't be shut to it again (laughs) you know so um yeah but I, I do think in terms of just thinking it on a very more global level and if you think about you know a lot of us begin to kind of come towards compassion by first of all learning a loving simple loving kindness practice so we're sending good wishes out to the world and it, you know some of them practice do the same thing isn't it it's for ourselves for those we we know well those we know less well and you know and we begin to extend it out towards the planet and it I think it's no different in terms of thinking about compassion in that way. Mm. No, I, I, I agree. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, t- tell us a bit about what's, what's next. Do you have any other projects on the go or things that you're interested in post the, post the PhD? I know that PhDs can be <laughs> rather <laughs> a big deal. So you're probably also enjoying just having a little bit of a break. But, yeah, what, what's next? Um, I'm an adjunct research fellow with Monash University at the moment. So the plan is very much, yeah, keep going. Um, I'm looking at developing ideas that hopefully I can put through applications for grants. Um, So particularly around this area of the program uh, and youth, uh, likely still at this particular stage. Um, And I also have an honorary uh, position with the University of Sydney. So that's where I've been doing some work with Professor James Bennett-Levy in terms of self-practice, self-reflection for CFT practitioners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, of course, you know, what we're talking about earlier, um, you know, that kind of experiencing it from the inside out. So we have ran um, a number of online trainings and asked people very, uh, who are very kindly given up the time in terms of completing some uh, surveys afterwards. Um, so we have that data in, we're currently looking at it, but I'm really not too sure. I don't have the uh, results just yet. So yeah, looking forward to uh, finding out what comes out of that. And with the, um, ha- have there been certain papers published from your PhD? There has. So I think it's five that I've published so far. I actually have qualitative data, which to be honest, that was a little accidental. We, I wanted some feedback and I got so much feedback. I was like, oh, I got some qualitative data here, which was fantastic. So I'm currently writing that up and that should be the sixth paper. So I have papers in terms of describing the rationale um, then, of course, actually describing the program itself. And what I really love about that particular program is we employed one of the participants when we finished the program to co-write the paper with me. So I described the session and then she describes her experience of the session. So it's a, a way that people want to get familiar with the content of a program and a participants experience. Then there's a paper on that. Um, I then looked at the quantitative results, so some of the ones I've described to you there. The letter to the editor, when we looked at um, the relationship of uh, self-criticism and distress. And then also in terms of, um, I also have this qualitative one that's in the pipeline. So I might put the, the links to those in the description so that people can, can have a look at, at, at some of your great publications and then also it sounds like the um the supervision from the inside out work is now completed you you've got you've collected all the data so um okay so we'll we'll look forward to to hearing how 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 all that goes as well um so one of the things that i'm asking everyone as you know is is just for their three tips so I suppose I was curious to, to hear, and, and perhaps it's to do with your particular area of, of working with young people and at, and at risk young people, or perhaps it's, it's just, you know, more general ideas, but, but what would be three tips for those who are uh, on their journey towards living a compassionate life? Yeah. Look, I think one of the things is, first of all, I suppose if thinking about uh, more compassionately in a way, isn't it, is 
I know it might sound very basic, isn't it? But sometimes there's a real misunderstanding of what compassion actually is. <laughs> so, you know, really kind of going back and having to think about that. So, you know, those two components, somebody has to be having a hard time or suffering or struggling. And then how do you respond to that with, you know, how do you respond to that with non-judgment, with courage, with wisdom? Um, and, and at times it kindness, because, um, you know, one of the things you say sometimes, uh, it really takes a lot of courage. Other times we really need to be kind to ourselves. Um, so I, I really think going back to them core understanding and really kind of thinking about what that means for you in your life. Yeah, and you know, from experience perhaps because I've set the mindful self-compassion course that actually starting with yourself is a really good place to start. I know there can be again confusion that uh, people think it can be selfish, but if you look at any of the research, it shows that your, you know, your own well-being is much better. If you have self-compassion, of course, that also means your relationship with others will be. And they also show that people who say rate their partners as more self-compassionate, uh, they've actually be found to, uh, they find them, you know, uh, more satisfied with their relationships. <laughs> so it, other people benefit too. So it's not selfish whatsoever. Um, and then again, I'd also think about it as we're just uh, kind of touched on a little while ago about how do you extend that, you know, to those around you, uh, to all the creatures that we share the planet with and the planet itself. Um, and I think that's where my three tips would lead me. Those, those are wonderful. So really understanding kind of what compassion is and, and some of the nuance there applying it to oneself, especially around both courage and strength and kindness and wisdom, uh, and then extending it to the world. Absolutely. <laughs> just, a, not, you know, just a small challenge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. All right. So um, yeah, I'll let you go in a moment. But uh, if people were wanting to you know, sort of connect with you or engage with you and your work? How can, how can people find you? Sure. I mean, even just simply Googling Tara Hickey Psychologist will bring up an, a number of uh, hits. But um, in terms of where I'm doing my private practice, it's VCPS. Um, and uh, certainly that's one way to contact me or even uh, through um, whether my work with Monash Uni either. So, um, but I'm pretty, I'm relatively present on the web, so it wouldn't be hard to find me in that way. Okay. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Well, I, I really, yeah, that, that was um, sort of fun and, and inspiring to get a chance to actually spend a bit of time really, really hearing about what, what you've been up to. I mean, that, that's a, it's a very important area of work and a great niche really that you're establishing there. It'll be interesting to see um, you know how that that continues to, to develop so thank you very much Tara thank for... you very much it's been a pleasure <laughs> it's really wonderful so we'll talk again soon sounds good